Thanks, Dan. Appreciate you, man. Southside, good morning. morning. Try it again. Southside, good morning. morning. There we go. You're alive. You're doing all right? Good. Hey, it's a great day to be in the house of the Lord. This is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Amen. Uh, On behalf of Jenna and I, uh, I want to thank you all genuinely for your warm hospitality and your extreme kindness to us since we've been here. We got to eat donuts this morning, so um, if, if you didn't get any, um, maybe there's some left later, but we thank you for your extreme hospitality. To the search committee, I know you're scattered out. Um, thank you for um, the way that you have treated Jenna and I. Um, we have felt very at home. We have felt very taken care of, and uh, I've forgotten how to drive because I've been chauffeured everywhere. So thank you for taking us to places, but uh, on, from our end, we want to let you know as a congregation, the way that this interview has been handled, it has been handled with class, it has been handled with, um, with great care, and also our meeting with the shepherd yesterday. You already know this, but I think it goes, it needs to be said, there is great leadership here, top to bottom. And so from, uh, from Jenna and I, with all authenticity and with all realness, we say thank you for your kindness. Thank you for allowing us to be here It is genuinely a privilege, not just because Jenna is from here, but because of the work that Southside is doing in the community of Lexington. We say thank you. So it is a true honor for us to be here, and I mean it from the bottom of my heart. I've been excited to be here. Teaching is a passion of mine, um, but it's it's been a really good time for us. And I want you to know, I do not take for granted being in this spot. Um, The Word of God is special to me. When it is proclaimed, it needs to be handled with care and truth. So I do, I thank you for this opportunity, and I want you to know that being here is something that I do not take for granted. Um, so I'm excited for us to open up the Word of God together. Uh, if you were to spend any significant time around me, I think you would come to quickly find out I'm a pretty logical person, okay? Jenna can attest to this, and while most of the time this is truly a gift for me, it can sometimes cause great frustration, and what I've found in my life is that the more illogical something is, as you can imagine, the more frustrated I get. You see, but here's my problem. I currently live with a two-year-old boy, okay? It's not, it doesn't go well. And for the most part, he has zero concept of what is logical and what is not. Now, I want you to know, I, I love my son with everything that I have within me. I'm excited to see him this afternoon. I love him with everything that is within me, but sometimes it takes all that is within me to wrap my mind around something that he has just done. Makes no sense. For example, just the other day, um, we asked Kyler to throw something away in the trash. He loves doing that, so as good parents want to give him opportunities to flourish, right? He's he's down and throw it away. Okay, buddy, go throw it away. Uh, But for some odd reason the other day, when he went to throw this thing away, he decided that he wanted to lick The trash can. That's disgusting and gross. And in my mind, completely illogical. So as a good father that I am, I looked at him and I said, son, what are you doing? His two-year-old self, his response, a smile, and he walked away. (laughs) Thanks, Dad. I appreciate it. In my mind, the decision, once again, to lick the trash can was completely disgusting, first and foremost, and completely illogical, secondly. But for him, truly, it was just another part of the day. You know, you look at soccer, you look at trash can. It doesn't really matter, right? <laughs> another part of the day for him. 
You see, Kyler and I had two very different mindsets on whether licking a trash can was acceptable or not. Completely logical and rational to him, but utterly illogical and irrational to me. When we we read Paul's words in Romans 12, he is not trying to convince a two-year-old that licking a trash can is unacceptable and irrational, but he does urge his readers to think about what is logical. In Romans 12, 1, Paul writes these words. I'll read them again. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. When we pick these words up of Paul, it's important for us to remember that he has just spent the first 11 chapters of Romans spilling out his heart to his readers. If you have ever read the first 11 chapters of Romans, you know these chapters are Paul's fullest explanation of theology, his fullest explanation of doctrine. And up to this point in the letter, he has done a thorough job. And I mean, he has done a thorough job of explaining the gospel and the great grace that God has given us through the person of Christ. But like any good teacher, Paul doesn't just want us to be filled with head knowledge. He wants that head knowledge to then be applied to practical living. When we begin reading in chapter 12, Paul begins to make a shift in his writing with a firm knowledge base Paul now begins to explain how God's grace and how God's mercy should practically impact the daily living of a Jesus follower. And what I love about this shift is Paul, just like I try to do with Kyler, he encourages his readers and he encourages us to think and to act logically. He says, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, which is your spiritual worship. When you look up that phrase, spiritual worship, in the original Greek, you come across something that is actually pretty interesting. While translated spiritual worship in English, in the Greek, Paul says that is, get this, our rational worship. Kind of crazy. While translated that, it's crazy. He says, this is a cool fact to know, but in order to understand what Paul is saying, in order to have a good grasp on what Paul means, we need to understand what he is saying at the beginning of these Verses, Paul says that our rational worship or our logical service is to what? To present our bodies as a living sacrifice to God himself. Now, for me, when I read that, I've got to stop and I've got to ask myself a very simple question. And the question is this, why is presenting my body as a living sacrifice to God an act of rational worship? It's a simple question, but we can miss all that Paul is saying if we don't ask that simple question. When Paul uses the word bodies, as you can imagine, he's not just referring to our physical and fleshly bodies. He's talking about our whole person. The entirety of us, mentally, emotionally, physically, and spiritually. He says that we should present the entirety of who we are to God. Every single portion of us. This is our living Sacrifice, or to put it plainly, it is our complete surrender to being at the full disposal of God. I lay myself at his feet and say, your will be done. Every portion of me is laid before God in humility. I commit to obey God and what he says to do. 
Paul in these two verses is encouraging each of us not just to commit our minds to Christ, but every portion of ourselves to him. But once again, why would this be a logical, why would this be a rational response to the great mercies of God? One author put it this way, and I loved it. He said, once you have a good view of God's mercy, anything less than a total, anything less than a complete sacrifice of yourself to God is completely irrational. You see, when we, you and I have a firm understanding of the gospel, anything less than giving 100% of ourselves to God is completely illogical. Why in the world would I give 50% of myself to God when he gave me 100% of his son? That makes zero sense. The numbers do not add up. It is utterly irrational. If we give ourselves partially, or if we give ourselves half-heartedly to God, then I would beg to say, then we are not thinking clearly. We're not thinking logically. You see, to understand the gospel is to understand that God wants all of me, not just a portion of me. And if we lack this understanding, then I would dare say, church, that we lack in our understanding of the gospel. So the question that I would urge each of us to consider is a question I've got to ask myself, and it's a question I would urge you to ask yourself. What percentage of you does God have? Does he have 20%? Does he have 50? Does he have 75? What percentage of you does God have? What would it be for you? Jesus gave his all for me. Jesus gave his all for you, and it is our spiritual worship to give our all to him. We see you and I in 2024, we run into a little bit of a problem. And here's the problem that you and I face today. We currently live in a culture that does not support this idea of complete surrender. In fact, culture would actually tell us to do the opposite. Instead of surrender, culture would tell us to cling more tightly to that which is ours. The lie that permeates throughout culture today is that this life is about us, what we want, what we achieve, and how we feel. The question that culture would ask us is, why surrender when self-centeredness seems to be a lot more pleasurable in the moment? The current tide of society does not support this idea of giving all of myself away. Hey, yeah, give God a portion of it, but everything, that's too much. That's what society would say. That's what culture would say. Give a little bit, but don't give everything. Keep a little bit for yourself. Illogical. Irrational. In light of that current mindset of culture, Paul's words in verse 2 ring ever so true. He says, do not be conformed to this world. But be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. As I was studying this verse and I was thinking about our time together, I came across a few statistics that I think are helpful for us as we read this. Now, from what I hear, Barrett gives a lot of sports analogies, okay? 
So I will spare you the analogy, and I'll give you the statistics. I'll leave the analogy for you next week, okay? I love you, man. Advantages may uh, vary slightly in sport, but in all sports, home field advantage is extremely helpful in the midst of competition. Sports Illustrated said this about home field advantage. Looking at major sports, soccer matches are the most influenced by home field advantage. Get this. In soccer, 60 to 69% of the time, the home team wins their match. Those are great odds. In the NBA, 62.7% of the time, the home team wins. In hockey, I don't watch hockey, but they were staying at a hotel, so this, this is helpful. In hockey, that number is 59%. And in American football, it is 57.6%. Baseball has the lowest percentage, but get this, it is still 54.1%. Home field advantage makes a huge difference, and if we can be honest, we love being the home team. We love it. But what I have found is playing at home, it has a great Impact and the impact of playing at home is exponential. But here's what you and I have got to realize. Within our current culture, Christians do not have home field advantage. As much as we would like for this to be untrue, the current culture puts Christians as the away team in society. One pastor said it this way, Christianity is no longer the normative worldview of the culture. The advertisers that come on during commercial breaks prove this to be true. The promotions and the topics that come up on social media feeds support that thought. Certain kinds of music that are popular and blasted over and over again, they agree with that. Jen and I, trying to find a clean TV show is darn near impossible. That's why we watch sports. It's really hard. Believers in Jesus, as it says in 1 Peter 2.11, we are exiles. We are the away team. Now, let me throw this in there. I'm not saying that every ad, I'm not saying that every social media post, I'm not saying that every song and every TV show is from the devil and they're out to get us. That is not what I am saying. But what I am saying is that a lot of what is acceptable in culture today are actually things that should be unacceptable for believers in Jesus. You see, if you and I are not careful, we can become desensitized to things that should be appalling to us. But because it is so frequent in our culture, we can, even if it's in the back of our minds, assume that it is okay. But let me say this. Popular opinion is not always the right opinion. In fact, when you read throughout scriptures, especially in the life of Jesus, what God had to say was often in the minority. Look what they did to the prophets. Look what they did to Jesus. Look what they did to the apostles. What God had to say, the vast majority of people did not want to hear. It was in the minority way back when. It is still in the minority today. It's in this truth that Paul warns us to not be conformed to this world, 
You see, to be conformed to something is to fashion your life according to the same pattern of living. Some synonyms for that word are to follow the crowd. Fit in. That word has this idea of behaving according to socially acceptable standards of what Paul calls this world. Paul is telling the people in this letter, and he is telling us today to not be controlled by the thoughts and the pursuits of the present time. He encourages us to not shape our lives around the different cultural pressures that so easily tempt us. The pressure to have more, get more, be more. The pressure to fit in, have the perfect image, or be the perfect person. There's only one perfect person. His name was Jesus. So I will free you of it. Don't try to be perfect. That's why Jesus came. Pressure after pressure. Each of us is being tempted to conform to the patterns of culture. And I think we can agree, if this is church, we can at least be honest a little bit. The pressure of culture is strong. But Paul warns you and I to not fashion our lives like the world. Instead, he says, do not be conformed, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Here's what I need to understand in my life. Here's what we need to understand as Christians in Paul's warning. Christians are called to be transformed, not conformed. You see, conformity finds its roots in being like everyone else, where transformation finds its roots in being changed into someone else. You see, that word transformed in the Greek language is where we, in English, get our word, get this, metamorphosis. If you spend any time in science class, you have an idea of what metamorphosis is. In science, metamorphosis is when an insect or amphibian goes through the process of transformation from, get this, an immature form to an adult form. To simplify it, it's the process where a tadpole becomes a frog. Or when a caterpillar turns into a butterfly. Each of these examples shows how one thing completely changes into another form. This is what Romans 12, 2 says that Christians should be doing in the midst of culture. We should not be doing just what everyone else is doing. We should actually be changing into someone completely different. We too should be in the process of going from an immature form to a mature form. We should be going through this type of spiritual metamorphosis. That word, we too should be doing that. In this process of transformation in the life of a Jesus follower, what Paul says, it happens through the renewal of your mind. And I love what that word renewal means. That word means to go through a complete renovation. It's like one of those HGTV shows. Y'all watch those? I do. They take an old abandoned house and they make it this beautiful and this awesome home. Our minds, through the power of the Holy Spirit, are renovated and they're completely changed for the better when we surrender to Jesus. It says that we must be transformed. So that means that the transformation is not something that we can make happen in our own power or in our own strength. We're in need of someone bigger, someone greater, someone smarter to mold us 
into someone different. And I will tell you, the Holy Spirit is the only one who has the power to do that in our lives. This transformation, it is an active and it is a daily surrender to the Lordship of Christ. Because in our surrender, we give God, get this, it's crazy. We give God the right to mold us as he sees fit, not as culture sees fit. I surrender to the potter. I am the clay. Make me what you want to be, not what people think I should be. You see, here's the difference between the culture of the world and the culture of Christ. Culture longs to tell you what to think. Jesus longs to transform how you think. Culture prays. It feeds on the immature. Why? Because immature people are easily swayed. Immature people are easily persuaded. I guarantee you I can convince my two-year-old that a penny is more valuable than $100. I could do it. And he'd probably eat the penny. Or at least lick it. That's going to happen. I could convince him of that. Why? Because Kyler has got to mature. He's got to grow up. He's easily persuaded. He's easily swayed. But if I try to do that with Jenna, she'd take $100. On the flip, mature people, what do they do? They know how to think for themselves. They know how to process information. They know how to process thoughts, and they know how to process suggestions through wise filters. God longs to transform your mind. He longs to transform my mind and how we think, because get this, how we think influences how we act. And here's the beauty of the gospel. Whether you are 8, 18, or 80, God still longs to transform your mind. Never too young, never too old for the gospel to do its job, to change you, to transform you, We're never too old for God to continue to transform us. So as we close, here is the question that I would love for each of us, myself included, to consider. In the midst of culture, are you a thermometer or are you a thermostat? Random question in church, but it's a good question. I think at least I'm going to say it. You see, thermometers, what do they do? They, They just simply relay what the temperature is in the room. It just simply reflects how hot or how cold the room is. But you see, a thermostat does something completely different. A thermostat sets, and the thermostat regulates the temperature in the room. Christians, believers in Jesus are called to be a thermostat, not a thermometer in the midst of culture. Christ has called you. Christ has called me. To not simply reflect the status quo, but we are called to be transformed so that then we can transform the environments God has placed us into. He longs to transform you so that you can transform environments. That's the beauty of the gospel. It's what he does. He's in the transforming business and he wants you to be a part of it. So here's my question to you. Which one are you? Are you a thermometer that just ebbs and flows with the current status quo? Or are you a thermostat allowing God to use you to set the tone of the environment around you? 
I'll ask it again. Which one are you? You see, here's the connection between verse 1 and verse 2 of Romans chapter 12. In order for us to be godly thermostats in the midst of a hurting world, we must be 100% surrendered to God. Our world, your home, my home, is in need of men and women who are all in with Christ. 100%. There are enough partial commitments in our world. We don't need any more of those. We don't need any more partial commitments. What we need is a full, unhindered commitment to Jesus Christ. Jesus gave his all to me. It is the privilege of my life to give my all to him. So here's my encouragement to you and to us as we close. If you're a thermostat, praise God. Keep allowing God to use you in mighty ways. Continue to be transformed so that God can use you to transform your areas of influence. If you are a thermostat, keep setting the tone. But for those, but for those of us in the room who would say that we are thermometers, I have some great news for you. The great news is that God longs to transform you into a thermostat. He longs so badly to do this that he sent his son Jesus to die for you. The question is not, can I be a thermostat? The question that you and I have got to ask ourselves is, will we let God have all of us so that we can become a thermostat? The only prerequisite to become a thermostat is complete surrender. How awesome is that? Just give ourselves completely unhindered 100% to Jesus, and I guarantee you, he's got the rest. He's been doing this for a really long time. He knows what he's doing. You don't have to get yourself right to be a thermostat. You don't have to clean yourself up to be a thermostat. In fact, that's the opposite of the gospel. What Jesus tells me is, come to him, I will do the rest. Give yourself to me, and I will mold you. I will shape you. I will make you into a thermostat. You make every room hot. Complete surrender is the only prerequisite to being a thermostat for culture. There is great beauty in surrender, and the beauty is that we can be molded by God. So hear me, God loves you. Jesus died for you, but he also rose for you. The Spirit of God longs to transform you. You are called to be a thermostat for the glory of God and the good of others. So as we stand and we sing, it is my prayer that each of us will be a thermostat used for God's glory.